Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In today's episode, we'll be talking about Seabury Quinn's short story, The Tenants of Broussac. This was published in 1925. This is the second Seabury Quinn occult detective story that we have done this year, but this one is actually not officially an installment in our series on occult detectives. This one was simply nominated by one of our Patreon supporters to a regular ballot, and then, of course, the rest of our Patreon supporters voted for this. And uh, I'm delighted that we're getting a second one of these Seabury Quinn uh, de Grandin, Jules de Grandin stories, because I really love these, and I will uh, look forward to talking about which of them we prefer when we get to our uh, year in review show in uh, just a matter of weeks. Yeah, this story is a blast. It's not only the second, you know, C. Barry Quinn story we're covering this year. It's the second Jules de Grand Don story as well. And um, there are some marks of that on this story that I think are going to be worth uh, some discussion points. This story is a lot of fun, but it's very strange and it's very different than the rest of the de Grand Don to Grand Don stories, uh, the reason, you know, not the least of which is that it doesn't take place in Harrisonville, New Jersey. This has a totally different setting. So you can see uh, Seabury Quinn here is kind of stretching his legs a little bit, wondering where he should take this series of tales, whether it's going to be a series or not. Um, and all that stuff is is what we'll keep in mind as we cover the tenets of Broussac. Right. As you said, this is the second of these Jules de Grandin occult detective stories. And we know that ultimately Seabury Quinn goes on to write, I think, over a hundred of these. I mean, scores and scores of these that take up multiple volumes. But this is just the second of them, right? And so what that means is that it is not really the second in an exceptionally long series, so much as it is a sequel to one successful story that Seabury Quinn has has written and sold so far, right? And it's a story, of course, that you and I uh, covered a few years ago here on the show. And so we know, right, as readers, uh, you know, a century or close to a century later, we know that these stories, as you say, Brandon, are largely going to be set in New Jersey, where de Grandin will live with his American friend Trowbridge, and that they're both doctors. But none of that is clear yet in this story, right, that there is going to be this series and that that's the shape the series is going to, to take, because this story is actually going to take place in France. Because, of course, what happens in the first story is that de Grandin had actually come to New Jersey as part of an investigation. He himself didn't live there. And when that investigation was over, well, that meant it was time for de Grandin to return to France. And he has done that. But this story is still the first-person account of de Grandin's sidekick, de Grandin's Watson, right? That is Dr. Trowbridge. And the deal is that Trowbridge is simply vacationing in Paris. He's enjoying a drink outdoors at a cafe, as, you know, one does in Paris, when de Grandin just happens by and recognizes Trowbridge. And the game is afoot when de Grandin explains that he is just about to travel to Ron in Normandy for a case, an occult case, and that if, uh, you know, Trowbridge isn't doing anything, he should tag along. Now, obviously, he's going to, but he does get de Grandin to tell him a bit about the case before he agrees. So we'll cover that, too, and then we'll pause and take stock of all of this. In the countryside around Ron in Normandy, there is a chateau belonging to the Broussac family. Some of it is medieval, but none of the house is more recent than the early 18th century. 
It is a charming place, but of course the family can no longer actually afford to maintain it. And so they rent it out to wealthy families and then live a life of leisure off of those proceeds. But that business has been jeopardized by a series of unfortunate events. A man's body was found dismembered in the chapel one morning. Another man was found in the grounds, his body half the width and twice the length that it ought to be, which is to say that apparently he was squeezed to death. And these are just two sample items in a much longer list. Trowbridge is intrigued, as of course, right, we all are at this point. But it's not merely academic here. It's not merely solving a crime after the fact, because there is another family renting the place right now. It's an American family with a 20-something daughter, and it is likely that they are all in jeopardy. I love all this business about the declining French aristocracy trying to hold on to their estate by renting out their grounds and home to wealthy English-speaking tourists. I love all of this because this this kind of information tells us exactly what kind of story we're in, which is, you know, a gothic story. But we're going to have some fun with that. I mean, Quinn lets us know right off the bat we're going to have real fun with all of these tropes. Uh, but we also get more information about Jules de Grandin in this opening chapter here of this story. Apart from being a medical doctor, de Grandin has also acted as a spy for the French government during the war. And he's also been, uh, you know, developing a reputation as a bit of a globe-trotting adventurer. And on top of all of that, he's further developed a reputation for reliably ridding, moldering homes of ghosts and generally negative paranormal stuff. So what we have here, what Quinn has invented for us in Jules de Grandin is really a grand kind of pulp hero geared up for all different sorts of stories and adventures should see Barry Quinn wish to pivot away from the occult. So yeah, what I'm saying is this, in this first chapter of the second De Grandin story, Quinn is both setting up this tale, right? The Tenants of Broussac. It's going to be a, a little bit of a gothic adventure story, uh, maybe with a haunting or something like that. But he is also thinking about what he can do with Trowbridge and De Grandin in the future. Um, but for the time being, it looks like he is going to stick to occult mysteries. And I have to confess that as much as I love these stories, as, as longtime listeners will know, it was not until we read the first of these that I had read any of them. And I have read more than we have covered at this point, but certainly not all of them. <laughs> and uh, uh, to my knowledge, they are all occult mysteries, right? They're all, uh, I have some kind of weird or horror or at least uh, fantastical element to them, but uh, maybe, maybe they don't. And actually some of these might even be backstories in some way, right? Where you could still have Trowbridge be the narrator and just say, you know, one one evening, de Grandin and I were drinking brandy by the fire, and he told me this story about what he was up to in the First World War, or something to that effect. I'm sure that we get at least one like that, even though I have not encountered that yet. All of that is just to say that your inference here, Brandon, about what it is that Quinn is trying to set up is, I think, spot on, right? That Quinn has had this one massively successful story. He's been invited to submit another one to Weird Tales here and is seeing the potential for this character to become, you know, the Sherlock Holmes of, of Weird Tales, right? Which, of course, he does actually become. And uh, it's just a lot of fun to see Seabury Quinn working through that on the page here. But all right, let's go get to the Chateau Broussac. 
The situation here is that the renters are from Oklahoma, and more or less, it is the exact plot of the Beverly Hillbillies. This family were poor farmers who recently discovered oil under their land, and now they are fabulously wealthy. The members of this family are middle-aged mom and middle-aged dad, and then their 20-something daughter. The impetus for coming here to Normandy was that the daughter was engaged to marry a local lawyer back in Oklahoma, but now that they are a wealthy family, mom thinks that maybe he's not good enough. In fact, there's no maybe about it. Mom thinks he's not good enough for her daughter. So this trip was really meant to delay their wedding and give the daughter a chance to see the world, have her horizons broaded. And I will say that although it's not actually in the text, I think one of the motivations here, right, is that mom is hoping that maybe the daughter will meet a titled but impoverished young man who is in need of a wife. Now, it turns out that the daughter is sick in some way. She's lethargic and she won't get out of bed. She doesn't care about any of the things that she normally does. This sounds like a pretty precise description of depression, but it also turns out that she has weird bruises winding around her torso and also on some other parts of her body as well. Also, the gameskeeper claims that he's seen a giant snake on the grounds recently, and in fact, he's uh, he's just taken some shots at it with a, a, a gun. But everyone knows that that's ridiculous, that there is no giant snake on the grounds. Everyone except, of course, we the readers and Jules de Grandin. De Grandin does some investigating with flour in the chapel. I mean, like, you know, the baking ingredient flour in the chapel. And then the next morning discovers a young woman's footprints and also something that uh, looks like the track of a giant slithering snake. Then he finds where the snake dwells. He shuts that up and then goes off to Ron to get a special weapon to fight the snake. And when he comes back, he has a serious business longsword that I am pretty sure belonged to Joan of Arc, though that is not explicit in the text, but maybe we can take that up in the discussion. (laughs) At this point, he and Drowbridge then confront the snake. And in fact, de Grandin fights the snake and hacks it to bits. And I should add as well that this is all happening in the chapel with the young woman present, though she is sleepwalking, so not aware that any of this is going on. And now that the snake has been hacked to bits, everything is awesome. In fact, it is Shakespearean comedy awesome because the young lawyer from Oklahoma is here and he and the young woman are getting married today before mom can do anything about it. And that sounds like it is the end of the story, but it is not because we still need the explanation for this whole giant snake business. We're going to get that after we take stock of the fact that uh, I just blew through 15 pages of this story in about three minutes. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong to blow through the story in this way. There's lots of words in Quinn's text, but you've captured exactly what's going on in the story. There's a lot of detail that Quinn includes in this section of the text that could certainly be thought of as subtext for the story. There's the mother's obsession with materiality and consumerism now that she has the money to afford the things that she wants. I mean, she is the very definition of a character that is trying to flaunt her wealth and is looking to adorn herself with markers of wealth, including having the right husband for her daughter. So her daughter is really now an accessory rather than her child. She's meant to usher into the world in some way. And then, you know, this all of this kind of made me think of this uh, apocryphal John Steinbeck quote about how the American working class or the working poor will never really rally around socialism because 
by and large, poor Americans think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And, and certainly Mother Bixby is just this kind of woman. She's always kind of thought herself to have these entitlements of wealth, but just has been kept down by circumstances or something like that. That is all here, I think, as subtext in the story, though it's not really thematically tied to anything else that's going on. Then we have all this Joan of Arc stuff for those who need a refresher on uh, the specifics of her life, as I did. Um, she was a French military leader of a sort and a prophet. And during the first, this was all during the first third of the 15th century. Um, eventually, she was burned as a heretic when she was around 19 years of age. Later, she was revered as a martyr and is now a saint. There's lots of history and context here, too, but I think we need to think of her as having mystical powers for the sake of the story. So the role of the visible church, the chapel, and the invisible church, like the power of the God and the Holy Spirit or magic or something like that, is doing some kind of labor in the story. The degree to which any kind of belief is at play is a question maybe we can take up later on too. But um, yeah, we've got depression as a kind of metaphor here. Women who are being kept down in society. This is tied up with Joan of Arc. This is also tied up with sexual imagery, you know, even imagery of the fall of man with the relationship between the snake and the woman. So there's just a lot going on here. Right. Something we should say, I think something we'll get into in the discussion is that this was the cover story of Weird Tales, meaning that the cover illustration is a depiction of something from this story. And it's fairly tame by our standards, but it definitely has a sexy lady being sexily embraced by a snake. <laughs> well, you know, her heroic rescuer is equipped with Joan of Arc's sword uh, standing nearby, at least as in terms of a, uh, being a historical artifact. I'll be excited to, to talk more about that. The business with Joan of Arc is also interesting here because it comes in the context of talking about heretics and heresy and de Grandin, of course, being a, a French character, but actually being written by an American, has some things to say about the way that Americans deal with heresy and, in fact, refers to the very recent, like literally just a few months ago, Scope's Monkey Trial, uh, something you and I talked about when we covered At the Mountains of Madness on Patreon, this trial about teaching evolution in public schools in, in America, I think specifically this was in Tennessee, that happened just a few months previously in 1925. And de Grandin calls that a type of heresy and uh, thinks about and is thinking about this in the same terms as burning Joan of Arc at the stake, and in fact even predicts that at some point American culture will turn on our founding luminaries such as Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and exhume their bodies, uh, you know, cast them from their graves and uh, tear down the statues of them and so on. It's a really interesting part of the story. It has no bearing on the plot at all, but this really felt like. Seabury Quinn getting something off his chest here, something about, you know, something controversial in uh, current affairs. One of the things that Quinn gets to do with this invention of de Grandin is, you know, have this kind of broad caricature of this French, like snooty Frenchman critique American culture or what's going on in, you know, contemporary American news items or this or that. Um and, and because he's doing it with this kind of caricaturized European, he gets away with it. 
and but it's really just Quinn. It's clear that like there's arthorial intrusion here in the voice of DeGrand Don. And uh DeGrand saying like DeGrand Don is saying like, yeah, yeah, be careful who you be careful who you attack, you know, as as people with new ideas or people standing outside of the norm. Um you know, we're we're an old culture in Europe. We've been through it, but you haven't yet, really, as as Americans. And uh, it's a slippery slope kind of situation. I, I, I wanna I wanna return to the cover story business that you brought up because we will be talking about this in in our discussion. I want to to pause here to read a description of what to Grantan and Trowbridge find in the chapel here when they when they come across this you know sexual imagery that I brought up that's caught up in the fall of man that's caught up in the discussion of you know not just depression but also you know women in society and so on so here is how our heroes find the damsel in distress. I also want to consider this in terms of marketability of, of storytelling. Um, uh, but here, here's, here's what Quinn writes. This is uh, Trowbridge narrating. The rays from my lamp streamed across the dark vaulted chapel, and I nearly let the lantern crash to the floor at what I beheld. Standing before the ancient tumble-down altar, her nude, white body gleaming in the semi-darkness like a lovely, slender statue of sun-stained marble, was Adrian Bixby. Her long, rippling hair, which had always reminded me of molten gold in the Assayer's Crucible, streamed over her shoulders to her waist. One arm was raised in a gesture of absolute abandon, while her other hand caressed some object which swayed and undulated before her, parted in a smile such as Circe the Enchantress might have worn when she lured men to their ruin. Her red lips were drawn back from her gleaming teeth while she crooned a slow, sensuous melody, the like of which I had never heard nor wished to hear again. My astounded eyes took this in at first glance, but it was my second look which sent the blood coursing through my arteries like river water in zero weather. About her slender, virginal torso, ascending in a spiral form, hips to shoulders, was the spotted body of a gigantic snake. And this last clause here is in italics. I tried to emphasize that with, with the reading here. And that tells us we need to be shocked and, and perhaps alarmed by this imagery. And this imagery is really meant to be titillating. But furthermore, I think it's here really to get the co cover illustration for the magazine uh, that Quinn intends to be published in, which is Weird Tales. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I do know that for a fact now, but I've been thinking a lot about marketability lately. And, and Quinn, I think, is a very savvy writer on that friend, even though if you were to encounter, you know, the horror of some kind of feminine sexuality in a form, you don't want to experience it in. And then a gigantic snake that's killing someone, um, you might not be thinking about gold in a crucible. You know, some of the writing here is really hokey, but, um, we'll be able to talk about this in, in the discussion and, and there is more to cover before we get there. There is. Yeah. We have still not gotten the explanation for what is actually happening in this story. So let's do that now so that we can get into the discussion. The first thing I should say is that as soon as they got to the house, de Grandin shut himself up in the really spectacular library at this chateau. 
Even before the gamekeeper told everyone that he had seen a giant snake, de Grandin had already been finding accounts of just such a creature in the extraordinarily well-kept family records. And the deal is this. At some unspecified point in the late Middle Ages, the lord of this territory, named Raymond de Broussac, was terrorizing the local populace by, well, just by raping all the young women he could find. And this went on for a while, when finally the church intervened and Raymond de Broussac was sentenced to be executed as a heretic. Just as he is about to be burned alive, the abbess of a local nunnery curses him. She says, Snake thou art, snake thou shalt become, and snake thou must remain until some good man and true shall cleave thy foul body into as many pieces as the year hath weeks. So that's what happened. He turned into a snake, and he has haunted this place ever since. Through the years, there have been cases of women being lured into the woods and then found crushed to death, and that is what was happening here. The young American woman was being supernaturally summoned to the chapel where the snake monster was coiling himself around her and then letting her go, and she knew nothing about it because it was all happening in her sleep. And something else that de Grandin knew was that it was important to make sure that the young American woman not wake up during the fight, because if she did, she would succumb to madness. And uh, the Grandin and Trowbridge have succeeded on that front, and that is the end of the story. Yeah, that that is the end of the story. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I'm really struggling a little bit in considering <laughs> what we might really dive into for this discussion. This is a, a challenging story to think about discussing. We could talk about the alluring nature of the, the snake imagery. That seems a little maybe de trop for me. Uh, it's there on the page. There's not really any subtext there. Really, our heroes are trying to save this virginal girl from sexual ruin so she can marry. So maybe we can think about shifting sexual mores and norms. You know, it might be fun to consider whether a story like this can even be told today or written with a contemporary audience in mind. But let's put that on the back burner for now, though, because I think what interests me most about this story is what Quinn is doing in terms of setting up a series now with these characters. So first, Glenn, I want to I want to think about the retroactive continuity here or retconning at play in this story. What did you find Quinn getting up to in order to expand the scope of the storytelling playground that he's really building here? The first thing he has done is get out of New Jersey, right? He has, he has taken Bruce Springsteen's advice and, uh, and run, <laughs> except that we know that that's not going to be true, that they're going to end up back in New Jersey. But he has now at least expanded the geographic scope of this world, or at least of these, these characters, this duo. He isn't going to be able to go to this well all the time, right? He is going to have to have Dr. Trowbridge get back to his practice in New Jersey and figure something out about why DeGrandon is there. But he has already hit on the idea of sometimes they go on vacations, right? And so they can have adventures when they do that, which is, uh, you know, fantastic. That's something every iconic detective should do from time to time is go on vacation and solve a mystery while they're on vacation just to get out of the uh, you know, the, the the setting that you're normally in. So that's a great move that he comes up with right away. The other move here, I think, though, as well, is that he's taking advantage of the 
distant past, right, that Europe affords in ways that the United States does not. And so the very first of these stories was caught up in, actually, in very European affairs, but caught up in just the First World War, right, which is really just ended a few years previously, less than a decade previously. And so it's very current. It's very contemporary. But here, this business now is stretching back centuries, right? So maybe just the short answer is that de Grandin has expanded the scope in space, but also expanded it in time. That's exactly right. I mean, just the idea that de Grandin is a kind of globetrotting adventurer allows for so much storytelling, it's it's wild. The fact that Trowbridge is definitely game for whatever De Grandin is up to works really well here. Um, keeping Trowbridge writing these stories, writing about these adventures, I think is also something he's really committing to. These aren't De Grandin stories; uh, they're Trowbridge and De Grandin stories. So that yeah, there's a lot here that's going on. We learn more about De Grandin. We don't really learn much more about Trowbridge. What I'd really love to see Quint do is a kind of murder of uh, Roger Ackroyd sort of story where we get um, De Grandin on vacation. There's no sidekick, and the story is being told from somebody who is completely outside of the world of the you know. In the case of Roger Ackroyd here, the the Poirot storytelling universe. So there, there's just so much you can do. He's clearly taking a page out of Agatha Christie's book, I think, maybe more than Sherlock Holmes. And just just telling us with this second story, I can do whatever I want. Thanks for coming along on the ride with me. And I think it's a great move. I think if you're doing a series of short stories, this is the right move to make as a sequel. You know, go to Europe, go on an adventure there. This is what the Equalizer 3 is doing. I don't know. I just saw a trailer for that. <laughs> it takes place in Italy for some reason. Really kind of am intrigued by Anton Fuqua as a, as a filmmaker and his, and his topics, but uh, I'm interested in what he's going to do in Europe. But in any event, yeah, this is this is the right move. And thinking about Agatha Christie, I mean, I think you're absolutely right here. When we covered the very first of these stories, Horror on the Links, we talked about how that is just a blatant ripoff of Agatha Christie's title, Murder on the Links, although the stories have absolutely nothing to do with each other. I actually read Murder on the Links just to make, <laughs> make sure of it before we did that episode. But it is also clear that although there is all of this Sherlock Holmes elements in what Quinn is doing in the sense that we've got the sidekick as the first person narrator, that uh, there's not just a doctor. There are two doctors, right? They're both medical doctors here doubling down there. Uh, that that stuff is happening. Still, Agatha Christie is having huge success at this point in the 1920s in reimagining what the detective story can be or really what the the mystery story can be and one of the elements that you know Christie maybe the element that Christie is best known for is not just having a memorable iconic detective or several of them in fact but is really admired for the the characterization of the cast of her stories, the novels and short stories. And that is something that Seabury Quinn does here amazingly. That's why it only took me a few minutes to 
do the plot recap, right, for the the heart of this story, because most of the words, as you pointed out, are really devoted to the rich characterization. And this is what Agatha Christie does as well, right? When she has these locked room mysteries or specifically has, hey, let's go to uh, a mansion in the countryside and get trapped there for a few days with some people. It's the people who matter, right? They need to be colorful. There need to be red herrings and so on. And this is what Quinn has done. He has mimicked it perfectly. Yeah, down to the groundskeeper. I mean, this is kind of in line with the the next question I have, uh, which we're kind of in the process of answering, which is, you know, what are the benefits of having this story take place in Europe rather than in America? And I think it's this, it's this ability to do, to draw on this, you know, American sense of Europe based on this kind of pulp or um, tropey storytelling, you know, and then have the Americans be fish out of water there. You know, we have these, these nouveau riche, um, you know, family that you described as the Beverly Hillbillies, basically, and uh, put them put them in Europe and then get a sense of what they're like. And then also critique the, the attitudes of saying any one of us can win the lottery. We don't need to really be concerned with our lot in life or improving it because the lottery system is kind of this great social control. It's just that you know, this happens to be oil instead of you could easily do this with someone winning $700 million from the Powerball now. And I love what Seabury Quinn does here with really taking Americans and putting them in the Norman countryside and seeing what happens here and giving us different types of Americans and and really maybe I should say new worlders, right? Because one of the other families that's just in the backstory is uh, Argentinian cattle ranchers uh, who were successful, who got wealthy from their land in the new world as well. And as we were talking about earlier, just with the Scopes monkey trial and this business about heresy, it's clear that one of the things that Quinn is doing in this story is taking different types of Americans, putting them in Europe in order to look at them through a different lens. And so this is really a story that's about looking at America and Americans. Quinn is really writing a story here in which it's not just about the sexy lady being choked by a snake, though that's great fodder for the cover. He's really trying to say something about contemporary American culture here, probably in ways that would have been more visceral to us as readers if we ourselves had been, you know, contemporary to the publishing of this story. Yeah, absolutely. And I really want to think about this story in terms of its marketability or saleability. Um, I guess we can speculate a little bit and wonder... You know, Glenn, do you think that Quinn was trying for the cover story? Do you think maybe he was invited for the cover story? Or did he write this scene with having the cover story in mind? I mean, sometimes, you know, when I think about adventure stories and and trying to write them, all I have is like a Hardy Boys cover in my head, you know, a, a candle in a window, a flashlight in the foreground, a cave between them for some reason uh you know these these kind of kinds of classic like iconic images that stick in your mind do you think this is one of quinn's talents as a writer is to kind of imagine these and build a story around it or do you think you know what i guess what came first the chicken or the egg that's the question the image or the story the first thing that i should say in answer to this question brandon is that i don't know the 
answer to this question, but we probably <laughs> could, but we don't look things up live while we're recording. We don't subject our <laughs> listeners to that, but this is almost certainly known. We have pretty good records of Weird Tales and how it operated uh, and often have correspondence between the editor of Weird Tales and you know many of the authors and so on. So this is probably something that, that is known and that is available to us in some way. But I will say that just speculating about that, uh, one thing that's really clear just looking through a sample of Weird Tales covers is that what H.P. Lovecraft does is not going to get the cover very often, even if that's the thing I would actually want to be on the cover of the magazine, which is to say architecture, cool places, landscapes, cool architecture, and so on. The thing that is going to get you on the cover is either a monster, and that is something Lovecraft does pretty well, or a sexy lady in distress, or really just a lady in distress who can be rendered in a sexy way on the cover. But I think that you get a better chance of getting the cover, right? You have a better chance of getting the cover if you write the sexiness into the scene in just the way that you have read for us. Robert E. Howard is a master of this. And just looking through the table of contents from the from the Nightshade Books volume that we're reading here, which is uh, volume one of the complete tales of Jules de Grandin, which very nicely uh, marks for us which stories received the cover or were the cover for the issue of Weird Tales. De Grandin accomplished this a lot. And so I have to think that he probably, at least at this early stage, is doing this himself. He's thinking, what can I do to get the cover? What's an image that I know the magazine will want to put on the cover? Let me write that. You know, at what stage of the story that comes in, I'm I'm not sure. I don't think that he probably starts out that way thinking about that and then maybe finds a way to insert that later, right? When he's on his, you know, second draft or just even writing the first draft, right? Hits on the, oh yes, this can be the this can be the cover. But I'm not really sure. But in any case, I guess the short answer is I think that de Grandon himself is attempting to get the cover at this point. Later on, after he's been at this for a few years, he might actually get told by the editor, we want to give you the cover this issue. So, you know, give us something that can give us the type of cover that we want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think that's right. I think he knows the market, right? And this is something that I think I think about. I mean, so much of the, my like artistic or creative drive is around some kind of like uh, I don't know expression or exploring some literary technique or something like that and being artful. But I I love tough guy novels. I love detective novels. I love pulp. Uh, you know, I love thrillers. And so I'm like, why don't I need to try? I don't know if I have the skill to write those kinds of, of stories or, or novels, but, uh, I need to work harder at it cause I'd like to sell some stuff. So <laughs> reading these Quinn stories, is really fun for me thinking about reading and engaging with somebody who th- is clearly thinking so much about the saleability of their, of their work. Um, and, and, you know, there's some clunky pros here. There's some stuff, you know, we have two, two questions left in our discussion to kind of consider, but to engage so much with somebody who's clearly thinking about the saleability of their work is uh, it, it's it's worth considering if you're trying to be a writer who wants to I don't know buy at least a case of beer a year with with the sale of their writing which might be all most of us can manage but um, yeah I, I really appreciate Quinn for that element of his storytelling which is let's get this out there let's get the cover let's let's do the most we can. Um, and that's in contrast to Lovecraft, who is eminently more saleable now. 
um, as a historic writer, as somebody who's influenced American literature and the American imagination, so many great horror writers today. Um, sometimes I think as a writer, it's worth thinking about how can you just sell the piece and not worry about where you stand, you know, how, how your feet are planted in the tradition of the craft. And as we've talked about before, Lovecraft really loathed Seabury Quinn, perhaps not as a person, but loathed these stories. He thought that they were schlocky, thought they were formulaic, and that they were just meant to be titillating crowd pleasers. And I don't know if that's I don't know if his assessment about that is wrong. I think his characterization of that as bad is wrong. I (laughs) (laughs) am in love with these stories. I adore them. And I also think that Seabury Quinn is unsung as being extraordinarily influential for our television landscape that we have today. I think he's just as important in our pop culture as Lovecraft is, even if his name has not, uh, uh, you know, Quinian is not a thing that people say. No one is talking about Quinian horror or Quinian (laughs) detectives, but they probably should be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's two questions I have left, as I said. Um, one is going to examine the, the the text itself, and the other one will examine the nature of this story. But to consider the text itself, I, I want to consider the rules of magic here. Um, do you think, Glenn, that it's important that de Grandin was wielding this kind of magical or pseudo-magical or historical artifact, the sword, when attacking the snake? You know, was, was it the magic that's important, the religious association with it, or the artifact itself? Like, what is going on with magic in this story? Why is it a nun instead of like... Uh, you know, someone outside of the dominant religious culture. This is a great question because this is also the answer to the first question you asked about the way in which de Grandin, <laughs> about the way in which Quinn is expanding the world that I'd left out, which is that the first story is a science fiction story or, you know, a science fiction horror story. It's about scientists uh, messing around with stuff they shouldn't be messing around with and creating, you know, were apes. <laughs> And uh, it's not cool, right? And people get hurt. But it's a science fiction story. It's a story about scientists. And this is not, this is a story about magic and specifically about religious magic. And so that's a big change in terms of thinking about what type of world are we in. So we're not just in a world with scientists who can do stuff that seems undoable, but we're also in a world in which magic exists, that if you are a pious nun, you can curse somebody somehow, right? Or at least you used to be able to do that. And I also think that the sword is magical in some way and that that is important. Uh, It clearly matters as well that de Grandin is a good person, you know, however we're measuring that, right? But that's part of the the nun's curse is that he's going to have to get hacked to bits by a good person person. And so we know that he is pure of heart in some way, right? That he is actually a chivalric hero as, you know, all detectives are meant to be chivalric heroes. But here in this case as well, he goes and gets this sword. I am a little surprised actually that Quinn didn't make a bigger deal about the sword. He just brings up this business about Joan of Arc and then has de Grandin go off and get a sword, but doesn't really make those two things meet, but I'm pretty sure that that is Joan of Arc's sword that he went and got, and that also it has some kind of magical power. It has to be. Yeah, this this magical artifact here is is kind of mishandled. I mean, not by de Grandin, who handles it very well and, and I guess chops the 
snake who uses 51 cuts to chop the snake into 52 pieces or something like that. Um, but the, but by Quinn, I mean, Quinn is a little bit unsophisticated here in, 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 in these early stories um, and, and kind of continues to be so even as we read a later story that we both really loved, but was had some hand, um, elements that were mishandled. And I, yeah, so I guess I understand uh, like you Lovecraft's um, critiques of Quinn, but this kind of storytelling, serialized storytelling, getting the story out, iconic detectives, this is how I think young writers need to be writing. And as they develop, they'll, they'll grow. And I, I bet there are some just absolutely nearly perfect stories that Quinn has written, but he wrote fast, I think was his, was his goal. Yeah, and I think we can even just tell that by the the publishing date and the reference to the Scopes Monkey Trial in the story. The Scopes Monkey Trial is the summer of 1925. This issue of Weird Tales is December 1925, which of course means it was really on magazine stand shelves in November 1925, and that the all of the work of physically getting it ready for printing had to have been done, you know, the month prior to that. I mean, like right. Uh, Joseph Doolin, the the cover artist, would have had to have had this story, or at least that part of the story, ready for him to you know turn into an image prior to that. So my sense is that yeah, Quinn wrote this story in the summer of 1925 and sent it off to Weird Tales, and that yeah, it takes about you know uh, four months or five months from receiving the story that the editor really loves before it's actually you know, on, on the magazine stands and in people's hands, that's about as fast as it can go. And so, yeah, I think there's a real sense that, uh, Quinn writes these stories and gets them off. I think that probably we'll get to a point where he's getting a little more time to, <laughs> to sit on them. Uh, but we'll see. I, I, am excited. I hope that we get to do more of these in the future. We've done three of them now, two of them this year. Of course, we were aided in that by actually doing a series on occult detectives this year, but I hope that we get more of these. I would love to do one or two of these a year for like the next decade. Yeah, I, I love these stories. I hope we're able to as well. I have one more consideration or question in, in relation to this story. And this is partially because reading the story paralleled uh, with with our preparation for um, Jim Butcher's Stormfront. But I wonder if a story like this, and I'll explain what I mean by a story like this in a moment, is really kind of a quaint artifact of our own past and history as, as uh, you, you know, we look at pop culture. I mean, but I mean, by story like this, stories where the stakes are that a young woman might be ruined for marriage or something along those lines, you know. In other words, how does one whose interest is in pulp or weird tales move beyond the chivalric code to create stakes for their stories. Now we've read people like Brian Evanston, Laird Barron, Caitlin R. Kiernan, um, even Karen Russell, who do are all masters of this. But I think we end up often returning to this uh, chivalric code as a base for the moral center of the universe we're reading stories in. And that as a trope, typically includes this kind of virginal woman on the edge of ruin. Um, this is something we'll have to consider in, in in Stormfront, as I mentioned. But do you think a story like this is really possible? It's possible to tell a story like this well today, or are these stories really a part of our past? I think you could tell a story like this well today. We would want to change a lot of elements of it. We don't want a damsel in distress 
for for all of these. I mean, I think every once in a while you might end up with that, just uh, you know, just rolling the yeah. dice. People are in danger, right? <laughs> yeah, it could be woman who's in danger. It's not a big deal, right? Exactly. But I don't think that we would tell this story today, where that's always the formula. I also would like to think that if we were going to tell this story today, we would downplay the sexiness of this. That we would actually make the fact that the that we would make the fact that de Broussac was a rapist uh, and murderer of women, we would make that more vile. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily need to make that more graphic, but that we would foreground the villainy of that, I think, more more than Seabury <laughs> Quinn does, and that we wouldn't make these episodes sexy in this way, that we would actually make them horrifying, we would make them disgusting. We would also, I think, perhaps not just have this get-out-of-jail-free card that Quinn has, which is, so long as she doesn't wake up while it's happening, she's going to be fine. She'll be mentally fine as long as she doesn't wake up. I think that if we were going to tell this story today, a writer would want to actually think about the trauma of this experience for whoever it is that's being attacked and and victimized by this monster. Those are things that we are interested in in our contemporary society in ways that Quinn's society, Quinn's culture simply was not. But I think that there are ways to tell this type of story in a way that would be great for our contemporary audience without really a whole lot of revision to the plot elements. I think that's right. I think we as a culture are still really hung up on um, the errant knight as kind of our, you, you, you often use the word paladin, but as our, yeah, paladin type of hero. And um, it's a great way to tell stories. You know, Jack Reacher is one of these types of characters. Um, You know, carrying the values of the old kingdom is a phrase we use a lot. And that old kingdom is in, in flux because the past is always a different past for us as we continue to move into the future. So yeah, there's ways of of updating our sense of the past that might not rely so heavily on this kind of code of chivalry that is about, you know, preserving women for marriage and some kind of way that involves their their virginity or men being noble in very specific ways or ignoble in other ways. Um, But this story explicitly is trading on that kind of medieval time period, this violation of the code, the marriage plot is here, the expectations and entitlements of wealthy Americans. So there's a lot that's caught up in this story. But I don't think we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. By that, I mean, we don't need to throw away the errant night in order to update our, our norms and mores that we're dealing with in this kind of adventure-based uh, storytelling. No, I no, I agree. There is still room in our culture today for these types of stories. We just would want to change some of the elements of the, the characterization and, and change the way that we're talking about, well, in this particular case, change the way we're talking about sexual assault and also what we're doing with characters who are in horribly traumatic circumstances, not waving that away, but actually confronting that, making the story about that in in some way. Yeah, the mother is really the the true bad guy in this story, if you think about it, in the way the story's told, uh, and her attitudes are endangering everybody around her. And so um, that's worth thinking about, but we're not going to uh, talk about that here. I think we've we've done what I wanted to do with this story, and we always like to save a little bit of discussion for uh, our Discord server as well. For those of you who are on Patreon, um, our Reddit site's still up. You can always email us. We're always happy to hear from you. But that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, 
I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you love detective stories as much as Brandon and I do, I hope that you will join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia so that you can gain access to the Sherlock Holmes bonus series that we have been doing. I think that uh, as this is airing, we are getting close to wrapping that up. That series, of course, culminating in the Neil Gaiman masterpiece mashup of Sherlock Holmes and the Cthulhu mythos in his story, A Study in Emerald. Next time here, we will be back with The Red Hand by Arthur Mackin. That's actually going to be the last story in our Occult Detective series this year. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.